let me just remind you, you have probably purchased something on the internet today or this week. And I promise you, you didn't purchase anything that didn't have a picture. And you know, <laughs> yes. think about just how much transactions are occurring online every day and how much those photos inspire those transactions, having these amazing assets that really do get folks excited about purchasing your product is the difference maker between add to cart or not. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital. And on today's show, we have Liz Georgie, the CEO and co-founder of Suna. Today, we are talking about her path from the Iron Range of Minnesota to the Front Range of Colorado. It's an inspiring founder journey that began with a bootstrap company that worked content creation for large companies, that progressed to an exit, and a pivot to a venture-backed startup that created a novel and revolutionary solution for entrepreneurs and small businesses. We also talk about why Liz created the Cantor Clause and what Liz thinks the next steps are to help close the gender gap in access to venture capital. We laugh. I cry. <laughs> it's an episode you don't want to miss. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here, Les. Thank you for having me. To start off, why don't you tell us of the story of, of you, your story, and what led to the founding of Suna? Absolutely. Well, my story goes all the way back to northern Minnesota. My family lived on a place called the Iron Range, which is a very rural part of northern Minnesota near the Canadian border. And we lived up there for really two reasons. The first was that my grandfather had a canoe outfitting business that he would provide canoe outfitting services and canoe rentals and kayak rentals to folks who were visiting the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in the Vermilion National Park up in northern Minnesota. And the second reason was we had a lot of property, a lot of land, and we sold Christmas trees in the winter. And so we were an entrepreneurial family. We had kind of a mixed entrepreneurship that flowed with the seasons, if you will. And I was really lucky to grow up in a family business. I think growing up in a family business is actually a really unique life experience. You get to see firsthand exactly how a business can actually build a community we can build fans and actually can be a part of what's central to a particular area. You know, many people to this day, folks that I meet through the entrepreneurship community will tell me, oh, my family, you know, took a canoe trip from your grandfather, or I've even met entrepreneurs whose parents worked for my grandfather. Wow. And so you would be surprised how deep those roots go. But it also speaks to something that's near and dear in my heart, which is just the importance of building a business that really represents what you believe in and represents something that you're interested in. And so when I went to college, I actually studied journalism at the University of Minnesota. I was dying to be Barbara Walters. That was my life's ambition when I was 18. Of course, I didn't become Barbara <laughs> Walters, but I became deeply passionate through that experience with storytelling and being able to really articulate what you're doing clearly, make it compelling to people who just met you. And it actually became one of my superpowers as a founder, as I, I think I've been able to really use those skills later in life. When I graduated, I had a very meandering career. I was a television editor for a few years, lucky enough to work on programs for Big Ten Network and PBS and apartment therapy, and eventually was lucky enough to realize, oh my goodness. I <laughs> Liz, I gotta, I gotta tell you, <laughs> this is, this is 
it, it's it's intriguing to me to hear the the origins of your your story as an entrepreneur. You are the second founder in a row that's been on this podcast that had this like the journalist background that was like an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. went to college, studied journalism. And it's fascinating to me because this is something I've always thought of as a superpower of like some of the best entrepreneurs is the ability to communicate. And that's yours. That's yours as well. Absolutely. I would take none of it back. I wouldn't even take back making $20,000 a year in 2009. (laughs) You know, I really am grateful for the fact that I think working in media, you get a sense very clearly of how do I get rid of the fluff? How do I focus on what the core message should be? How do I make sure I understand what the audience wants to hear and really speak to who my audience is today because your audience changes all the time. And so I feel it was an amazing boot camp for being able to string together really strong narratives now as a founder. Of course, it was destined or ordained in the stars that I would eventually figure out that I should become an entrepreneur. But when I became an entrepreneur, I really knew nothing about business. Despite working in a family business, I didn't know what a P&L was. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I had no idea how to create a budget. And so I had to learn, you know, really my business school is starting a business. I had to learn on the fly and I'm exceedingly grateful that it worked out. But my first business was actually a bootstrap business. I started a production company in 2013, was very happy with that experience because I was able to live that dream of building a million dollar, multi-million dollar business in the course of seven years that served the biggest customers in the world. We made commercial work for Facebook, Microsoft, General Mills, Target, you know, you name it, we probably did something for them at some point. And it was also where I met my co-founder in this endeavor now. And that will always be part of my origin story is Haley actually worked for me. Was that Mighty Mighty Or? Is that right? Is that yep? Very cool. So that's where you that's where the two of you met. That's how we met. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yes. And uh, I always say to to founders, the best way to find someone that you can work well together with is to work with them. <laughs> so you know, having worked together, it's it was clear. We yeah. were magic. It's, it's funny, too, because I run into that a lot. You see these solo founders that are, you know, looking for advice on like, where do I find where do I find my co-founder, you know, and, and whether that, that other half of the, mm-hmm. of the skill set, And it's like, well, it's probably somebody you've already known, right. For years. Like you, you I, I would hope. Yeah. Exactly. And it's amazing too, how having worked together for a few years, we learned what each other was really good at and what we could lean on each other to do. So in 2018, we actually got the idea for Suna. We were on a trip together, a vacation together in Palm Springs, actually. And we're on a hike and we were talking about what we thought the future of media was going to be. And we both kind of came to the conclusion that we thought it would be faster. We thought it would be more affordable. But the thing we were both really excited about was transparent photo shoots, which makes no sense to anyone who's not part of the production universe, but makes a ton of sense now when you think about how Suna works. Suna powers a virtual photo shoot experience. And our first idea was, how do we just make it possible for anyone anywhere to have a photo shoot wherever they are? and with whatever device they have. And that genesis became really something we were obsessed with together. And and yeah, I eventually convinced her. She had no desire to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) But I eventually convinced her. It took me a full year 
to convince her that we were going to sell Mightier and we were going to apply to Techstars and we were going to go for the go for a totally different journey on my second go around. But I, so a year of convincing and then probably a month in, she was like, "Liz, what in the world did you just do?" <laughs> right? Or was was there any of that? Like, was there any of those moments <laughs> early on? I think sometimes still today there are moments. Of course, I know. It's kind of a leading question. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, Haley is, is an animator by trade and has a very different technical skill set than I do, but is so good at the technical pieces of our business because animation is really a technical part of the production industry. And so I think what we really discovered over time was that, and this will always be part of our origin story we are the unique combination where one plus one equals the output of seven people. And we've all had colleagues like this, right? Sometimes one person works with another person, it creates two people's worth of work. And sometimes one person works with another person, it creates zero work because it's just not a good collaboration. But in our case, we always found that we had outsized outcomes together. And that's what we tried to focus on in the beginning is how do we just make progress by contributing to each other and collaborating together in a way that allowed us to create technology that we really believed in and that we were willing to kind of bet big on. And, and that's really how it came awesome. together. And so what was the, what, what was sort of the journey from we're going to do after we're going to do this, we, you know, you sold mightier and then it's like, then what, like, how did you get started? How'd you get going? I know you ended up at, I want to talk about tech stars for sure, but what was like, what was the prequel to mm. Techstars? It was a full year of trying to determine, can we actually make production a real-time visible experience online? So the way that Suno works, and this is still the underpinning, is that within five seconds of a photographer taking a picture on a camera, can we deliver that to you on your device within five seconds. That was the goal. Because our hypothesis was, is if we could deliver those assets quickly and transparently, then customers could interact with them. They could give real-time feedback. Teams wouldn't have to fly across the country or even be in the same place in order to have a photo shoot. And so we had this idea. It took us about 11 months of working with uh, both folks we knew in our network, as well as with our own technology tools, testing and iterating to come up with a minimum viable. Once after that 10 months, we had a minimum viable product. I actually was when I had the conviction that we should apply to Techstars. And so we applied to Techstars with this really bizarre photo shoot tech platform that had no brand, had no real name, had nothing but, hey, Liz and Haley invented this cool thing. And uh, we want to show Liz you and Haley, coolthing.com was the, was the URL. Like, what, what was the name of the company? What was it? Well, at the time, it was literally just called our C2C technology. Wow. That's literally what we called and, it. And uh, which is quite pathetic, but that was as well. well but, <laughs> but you may, I mean, this is what's amazing is like, it was, it was maybe that, that, you know, unbaked, but you, you got in. I mean, it's Techstars is one of the most selective programs in the country, Techstars Boulder. What was the process like? And I think this really, I, I was going to say, this really speaks to being able to string together a really good story because I basically was able to say, you know, to Natty and Julie, like, okay, let me show you how amazing this real-time photo shoot is going to be. You're going to be able to see every single thing as we create it. And by the way, there's not a single thing on, that we do on the internet that doesn't involve a photo. 
So has anyone solved for photo shoots at scale? Has anyone solved for photo creation at scale? No, we're going to be the brand to do that. But we have to, you know, continue to make progress on this really, you know, abstract technology that we've built so far. And so we had, we had at least figured out, here's our studio space. Here's how we're going to deliver it. Here's the technology that's going to run it. And, you know, look, I'm this person who has a business that at the time was doing 3 million in annual revenue, and I'm willing to sell this business to go start this business. That's how much I believe in what I'm doing. And so I think I just really sold did you on the fact that I'm That's amazing. Out. Did you demo the product to them? Like, did they try, try it out or something? Or what, what did, what did they do? If you can say. Yeah. So I actually, this is of course pre COVID time. So I actually had them come to Denver, meet me in one of our facilities. And I actually showed them, okay, here, here's the product. Here's the application on an iPad. You're going to go stand in the other room and hold this iPad. And I'm going to show you that I'm going to be taking pictures over here. And you're going to see every single thing I'm doing in real time. And you're going to be able to give me feedback. And then I'm going to make changes. And so we literally just sat across two sides of a wall. Virtual. <laughs> virtual demo. Yeah. yeah. Had a photo shoot oh, it's so cool. Yeah, it was, yeah. But it was really powerful. And for me, it really speaks to you know how fantastic Techstars is because the mix of businesses can be things that are already in market and have, you know, have a lot of revenue, or it can be things that are real, just technology innovations that are trying to get from MVP to public launch. And that was really what we used Techstars to do. And that was how I pitched it to to uh, Julia and Natty is, hey, you're going to help me by the end of this program. When I am standing on demo day, we will have launched this technology to the world. And uh, that is so cool. You believe it or not, I was looking through our episodes today. You're actually the first Techstars company on the podcast. I mean, granted, we've only this is like our 24th episode. But but given that, I would love to hear for, you know, uh, certainly a lot of our listeners are, are founders in the Rockies. Just just some advice to folks that may be considering Techstars and just some some thoughts on your experience of, you know, the value of the programming. Techstars is a really special experience in that it is designed to allow businesses to take a year's worth of work and compress it into 13 weeks. And there's not many things in your career where you're going to get the coaching, the support, the resources to actually make time go faster in that way. But really, that to me was the promise that they delivered on. They told me we would do more faster and we did. We did more faster. When I think about getting into the program, I really would hone in on, on two key things. First is, what is the size of the opportunity you're going after? And two, why are you the right team to go after this opportunity? When you think about the companies that are really successful in the program, whether you see alumni like ClassPass or DigitalOcean, these are brands that have really honed in on that. There's this huge opportunity. No one's tapping into it. And we're the founding team to go after this for these right reasons. And reflecting on myself, that is exactly why I got into the program. You know, I had clearly articulated the opportunity around visual assets, and I had proven myself as an entrepreneur in the space in an alternative, you know, mode, but certainly adjacent to what we're doing now. And so that is what I would really focus on. The other piece of this is keep applying. So many people that were part of my program were folks who had applied two, three, four times and had just been trying to get it right. And so just because you don't get it right the first time doesn't mean give up and don't keep going for the program, you know, continue to apply and continue to, to make that effort. And then once you get in the program, you know, the things you're going to get access to are going to be really profound. You're going to get access to mentorship. 
You're going to get access to ways of doing and measuring your work that allow you to make better decisions more quickly. You're going to get access to free free resources, things as silly as AWS credits, that stuff adds up. You're going to get access to uh, the, the alumni network to help you formulate a sales strategy and you're going to get access to investors. And so understand also, are these the things you need? Like take those five things I just described and really assess, are these the things my business needs right now to move forward? And if they are, this is really a great way to, to get that. It's access. just, it, it's really a gem, right? I mean, it's such a, such an amazing program that we have in region for sure. It is in fact. Yeah. So I was at the demo day that you presented at, and I, I, there was, it was, a, it was, a, I remember that cohort in particular had some very unique companies, like not your traditional tech stars, typical, like they weren't all B2B SaaS companies. And for me, that was, that was, it was very eye-opening. In fact, you know, coming from a more traditional, you know, cybersecurity enterprise SaaS background, I, I have to admit, I, I missed, I missed some, some big ones that day. And you're in Suna was certainly one of them because it's been unbelievable to me to see the growth that's happened since you pitched uh, at demo day. Talk to us about that. Well, and it's, it's no surprise then that I think we have a class that is really outperforming uh, in many, many ways. And it is because it was a really diverse class. It was a really interesting set of businesses. There was also a really special piece of it where many of us were founding teams that were second time founders. We had maybe done something and failed or done something and decided to move on. And so there was a lot of learning that came from just saying, I remember one time the founders of Veho. And the fact that they were, we were sharing all the mistakes we made the first time around that we weren't going to make the second time around. And there is also something to be said for that. You know, a lot of folks, I think, don't quite realize how much value there is in, in messing up and making mistakes. And that was a group of folks who I think had made a lot of mistakes and had chosen to learn from them and do it differently yeah, next time. For sure. And so talk, tell us a little bit about coming out of that program where Suna was and kind of what the, what ensued after after that? Well, we had a bumpy first year after Techstars. I don't know if everybody totally realizes it, but we launched the product and we, we launched the people could actually make appointments for photo shoots at Demo Day. We started doing our very first photo shoots in May of 2019. And we were checking along. We were doing great. I think we had gotten to about 100000 in monthly revenue by the end of that year, which we felt really good about. And uh, of course, our, you know, attracted investors. We were able to do a round with Matchstick Ventures and Starting Line Ventures out of Chicago. But then COVID, of course, happened in Q1 of 2020. And we had to completely re-envision our business. We had to actually determine how could we build Suna without physical space and use the network effects of our photographer network to actually expand how we delivered photo shoots, allow uh, photographers to shoot from their homes, their spare bedrooms, their garages. How could we actually put Suna inside of someone else's facility, put it inside of a warehouse or put it inside of some kind of co-working space? And so we've tried, tried a lot of different modalities because it turned out that having massive infrastructure was a huge risk of exposure in COVID. And so we completely rebuilt uh, the foundation of Suna and actually in April of 2020, I spent two weeks locked in my CTO's house with my co-founder and we completely re-envisioned how we were going to deliver our services and how we were going to work with our teams and relaunched the product in June 
of 2020. Upon relaunching the product, we are now an entirely virtual photo shoot platform that is essentially functions like a managed marketplace. So we have people sign up to do a variety of things, everything from being a photographer to being a stylist to being a pet model or a human model. You can actually sign up to do all kinds of different things on the marketplace now. I don't think I could do the human model thing, but I might be able to pass as a some sort of pet of some sort. Maybe I'll maybe I'll sign up. Or or you could be a hand you could be a hand model. We have a lot of hand models. A hand model, hand model, even yeah. better. Yeah, there we go. And our customers now book a photo shoot entirely online. They then ship us their product. Once their product arrives in our warehouse facility, we distribute it to the appropriate order match. They then join their photo shoot in the browser. They see every single photo and video clip as it's created in real time. And they purchase their assets entirely a la carte. So they pay $39 per photo, $93 per video clip. I think the thing that blows everyone's mind is from June in 2020 to where we will end this year. We will end at about $9 million run rate at the end of this wow. year, which is pretty explosive growth in 18 months from a complete rebuilding of our business. I was going to say, I think explosive is probably a little <laughs> underselling that growth. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's been exhausting and awesome at the same time. <laughs> so, so what do you, th I mean, th I, I've been, I've been so intrigued to watch businesses react to COVID, you know, and I feel like it's had a very, a very binary effect, right? It's either, um, sadly, some businesses it's just killed. And I don't know, maybe it's because they, they haven't been willing to innovate, but for you, it sounds like your company embraced the challenges of COVID as an opportunity. And it really set it in a totally different direction or not totally, but, but somewhat of a, somewhat of a pivot. Do you think that would have happened outside of COVID? Would you've gone in that direction at any point in the future? We had always imagined that we would expand our platform to be possible to be used in a variety of different modalities, but COVID did two things. One, it made our opportunity way more pertinent and way more urgent because Every single company was now trying to start their e-commerce store. And just to put this in like stark contrast, when we started the pandemic, there were 7 million online retailers selling products online. Today, in just a, a little over a year, we've now at about 13 million retailers that are online. And so the volume of e-commerce stores just was growing so rapidly. And we knew we had to take advantage of that change in velocity, right? But also we knew that people getting together in a studio environment to take pictures was simply not going to happen in a pandemic. And so we thought, okay, can we take what we had hoped we could accomplish in two to three years, accelerate it forward? It's not going to be perfect. And, you know, I often say to my team, progress over perfection. How do we make progress towards what we're trying to achieve and really focus on the things that allow us to take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of us? I think what happened is that uh, a bunch of folks from the Midwest, which my co-founder, my CTO, myself are all from the Midwest, sat in a room and said, we will not let this die. We're going to take advantage of this moment and we're going to make it our moment. And that mentality is a choice. Of course, a lot of luck played into this too. You know, we had to, we had to be able to make it happen at the right time and Certainly the pandemic has not been a good thing overall, but it's it was a forcing factor in our business and in the industry at large that did service us in a pretty major way. Yeah, I, I would imagine there's also other small, small to medium sized business in, in the Midwest or really anywhere that 
you have been a total lifeline for, right? I mean, it helped them survive as well through your innovation. 100%. I receive emails and Instagram messages every single day from people who said, I just had my first student photo shoot, or I just had my fifth student photo shoot. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited because our first product sold out after we posted these images or, you know, I got laid off. I remember a story. There's a company called Shield and Heal, which is a of a brand of a mom and a daughter both got laid off from their jobs in the pandemic. They decided, forget it. We're going to finally start the Shopify store. We always want to start. They created a brand called shield and heal. They used Suna to create their images and they did $50,000 in sales in their first month with those images. And, you know, they could have never imagined that kind of outcome, you know, had Suna not existed for them. And I always tell people there is so much room for our business to not just change the big e-commerce retailers ability to create beautiful images, but actually to help someone have hope that they can start an e-commerce store in the first place. Yeah. And, and for, for any of our listeners out there, what, what Liz is referring to right now, if you go to Suna.co and see just the quality, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's, it's better than any of the big brands. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, it's or just as good, if just as good, if not better. I love, by the way, I gotta I gotta nerd out for one second. I love, the stop motion stuff. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. It, it's like, I am, I don't know why I've always been drawn. I like, I watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer at least four, four or five times a year, sometimes not even during Christmas. I just, I love stop motion. And uh, that's one thing I get drawn to with some of the, some of the effects that you, you your team does. Is the- that's amazing. No, I mean, that's what's so, I, I like to say to folks, if you don't understand how great this opportunity is, let me just remind you, you have probably purchased something on the internet today or this week. And I promise you, you didn't purchase anything that didn't have a picture. And you know, when you think <laughs> yes. about just how much transactions are occurring online every day and how much those photos inspire those transactions, having these amazing assets that really do get folks excited about purchasing your product is the difference maker between add to cart or not. And so That's we right. really conviction, have high conviction about that. It's such a, such a differentiator. If you were to, if you were to do it all over again, anything you would change, anything you would do differently kind of along the journey as you launch this. I don't like to have regrets because regrets are sort of, you know, it's almost like robbing yourself of your opportunities to learn. And I think all my mistakes were really good opportunities to learn, but probably one mistake that I made. And one thing that I would go back and in retrospect and change is I really did not understand how important it was going to be to get a COO into our organization and really have someone who understood, you know, with a managed marketplace, the operational complexity of our business is profound. And I probably waited too long to get that person into the business. Now, the COO I ended up bringing into the business is an absolute rock star. And, you know, I am so honored that I get to work with Day Mellencamp, who is our COO. And she was the former president and CEO of Vimeo for almost four years and has just brought such a level of intentional thoughtfulness to what we're doing operationally that it blows my mind. But I like to say I took too long, but at least when I finally did find the one, it was somebody who really could make a major difference. I'm so glad you said that because I know of a bunch of founders out there that could use that advice. <laughs> it's, it's hard though, until it's like, until you, until you experience it, it's hard to realize you know, how, how impactful that those, those critical senior C-level hires can be like a COO. So thank you for sharing. And you have to have so much trust. I mean, a lot of, I remember someone saying to me, like, I can't believe you're hiring a former CEO as your COO. 
And I literally looked at them and said, why would I hire anyone less impressive? (laughs) To me, it's all about trusting yourself, trusting your relationships and really investing in those relationships so that they can bring about the best possible outcomes. I always, my, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, like hire the people that you want to work that, you know, you would want to work for like better than you are in, in some way. Yeah. I love that. That's good. I'm going to steal that advice and give that to some other members of my team. <laughs> yeah. All right. So shifting gears a little, one of the things we always love to explore on the podcast is, is, you know, just trailblazers in our region and folks that are really pushing on and doing things that matter and, and being courageous. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the candor clause and kind of some of the background and and when, when, and when, why you created it. Perfect. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about the candor clause. So this all originated from learning about the fundraising process for founders who are maybe new in the journey. They will be shocked to find out that there is so much research done on founders, so much research done on businesses, so many questions that you're going to answer to investors about your business. And there's actually very few formats or processes for founders to do diligence on investors. In fact, I was amazed that it was even considered unusual for me to ask questions about the fund when I was you know, <laughs> learning, about the, learning about the whole psychology of a fundraising process. But once I figured that out, once I realized, wow, there really isn't a great formula for founders to learn about these investors, and I had had a really negative experience with a particular investor, I decided that I wanted to go to my legal team and say, hey, what could something that what is something that we could do to really create protections for founders to say, listen, if you are turn out to be someone different than who you represented yourself, we have the opportunity as a, as a company to buy you out of our business. And so that's exactly what the candor clause does. The candor clause is a open source legal disclosure. It goes into the representation and warranty section of a financing agreement. And it basically outlines that, Funds are required to disclose if they've had any history or issues with sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and now we've actually expanded it to include issues around racial discrimination, LGBTQ discrimination, and other rights areas. And if they fail to disclose any issues around these problems, we actually are able to buy those investors out at a later date at the price they paid during the initial financing. And that's a really important hole to close because what you find out from founders, especially those who maybe have had issues with harassment from their investors, is that uh, they make money on getting purchased out of those businesses. In fact, when a business does what it's supposed to do and it grows, they end up getting a return on being a bad actor and maybe not having uh, good behavior. And so we want to create an environment where everyone's being honest with each other. Everyone is really incentivized to behave in a way that is productive for both the relationship, but also for the business's growth. And uh, to put founders in a position of having a little slice of protection in a process that is otherwise mostly geared towards helping investors have more power in the relationship. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really amazing that you've, you've gone to, gone to, you know, take, taking the lead on, on this. And what's, what are you, what are some of the reactions you're hearing? Founders, investors, what are they? What well, do they you think know, lawyers it? hate it. <laughs> <laughs> don't they hate everything though? I mean, <laughs> anything not yeah. standard, they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Lawyers hate it. It's really interesting. It either does one of two things. It either immediately raises red flags for 
for investors of, ooh, I don't think I want to work with somebody who's, you know, so quote unquote, I've been told I'm obsessed um, with, with these issues. And I can quickly realize then that maybe we're not going to be a great culture fit. We're not going to have maybe the same values about the business. But it's also helped me realize who's going to be an even better fit for our business. You know, when you are having a great process with an investor, you realize that there is a great fit in terms of strategy, but also in terms of vision. And then you get to this conversation about, hey, I want to include the candor clause in my financing. And they read it and go, hey, this is awesome. Like, I can 100% support this. That for me is a really good signal that we're going to have a productive relationship we're going to be able to talk about the hard things and the easy things. And we're probably going to have the same values about how the business grows and how we treat each other in the relationship. And that's been a really awesome plus one for us as, as a founding team. Yeah, it, it makes total sense in terms of alignment of values and how important that is. Because I think, you know, as a first time founder, I didn't I didn't realize any of those things. I mean, similarly, I, I didn't ask questions. I just thought, oh, the VC is the person that writes the check and... I'm the person that runs the business and we go our separate ways, but it is so, so much more than that, right? And aligning those values is critical. And it's a complicated relationship at times. When things are going well, it's a very easy relationship. When things are maybe not going well, it's a really hard relationship. And as much as I would like to say that, you know, the current fundraising markets have helped give founders a little more power and, you know, the fact that there is more capital in the market means that founders do have a little bit more say, there are still, the, the data is still clear. You know, female founders still are not raising as much as they probably should be. Black and brown founders still are not raising as much as they probably should be. And so the opportunities might be increasing but they're not proportionately increasing with the dynamics of who's starting businesses. And so we have to be able to be honest about that. If we can't have candor, and that's why I called it the candor clause, if we can't have candor about the fact that the issues that I'm going to face as a female founder might look a little bit different than other founders in the portfolio, we probably are going to have a really hard time having candor about me needing to fire someone or have a really hard time having candor about a partnership opportunity that maybe I don't want to do, but the investors do want to do, right? And so you've got to be able to have hard conversations. And in a strange sort of way, this is the hardest conversation of them all to have. So let's just dive right in and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I love the name too, by the way. I think it is very fitting. It's perfect. Anyway, if you want to, if, if folks want to read more about the Candor Clause, they could probably, or can they find out anything online oh, about if that? If folks want to read about it or even download it and bring it to their legal counsel and use it in their financing, they can just go to candorclause.com and download it right from there. There it is. You got the URL. All right. <laughs> Great. What uh, a similar topic, you know, as as I think we, we all are well aware of, of some of the challenges, you know, related to the gender gap and, and some of the, the racial uh, gaps and, and discrepancies in financing and numbers. Like what what do you think if for the investors in the audience are listening? What are some of the, the concrete things that investors can do to continue to make progress in the, in, in the right direction here? Yeah, I always tell 
I I tell investors a couple of different things. The first thing I tell investors is really look at who you're getting your deal flow from. Does your deal flow look like you or does your deal flow look differently from you? So if you don't have folks in your network who maybe represent different backgrounds, you're probably just going to get a lot of the same. And so you want to create a diverse network. You want to have people around you who are sending you deal flow that look different from you. The second thing I always point out is that you can't count on folks just coming to you to get those deals. You've got to be willing to go outside your comfort zone and, you know, go visit Techstars programs in other parts of the country. There are things happening that are not just on the coasts of this country. And so go be part Thank of you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that plug. Yes. That's our whole strategy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sorry to and interrupt. So, yeah. No, it's no, it's perfectly important. Like get outside of the zones of uh, where you've normally been and see what other what other geographies have to offer. Because actually, not only if you just thinking about San Francisco as the perfect example, if you are not from a particular type of means, the likelihood that you have the means to start a company in San Francisco is low. If you're in St. Louis, the it requires far few means to start a company in that geography. And so just be thoughtful about those sorts of realities. And the third and final thing that I always say is I really want to encourage folks to just assess whether or not they have really given some of the other founders that they've met a fair shake. You know, when you do meet that female founder and maybe she's not as boisterous or as braggadocious as maybe the the male founders that you've met, maybe just ask the why and be really curious about whether or not that's a requirement for being successful. The presentation skills that I'm going to have might look slightly different than the skills of another founder that is maybe gone to the same school as me, has the same background as me, but our gender alone can just create a different outcome for how we present ourselves. And so Give folks the benefit of the doubt on some of those qualities and really be thoughtful about whether or not you are artificially biasing against things that maybe women are technically punished for. You know, if I'm overly braggadocious or overly sort of boisterous, I could be perceived as very arrogant, very rude, very unkind. And it's not anyone's fault. It's just how culture has really evolves over time. We're getting better. We're getting smarter. We're all evolving. Evolution number one starts in our own minds. And so just what goes on in your own mind. Got to break those millions of years of biases or maybe tens of thousands of years, whatever it is. But that's great advice. That's great advice, Liz. Shifting gears a little bit, I always like to kind of ask founders about kind of what where they get their inspiration from, in particular, if there are people in your life looking back, looking now, you know, looking you know, recent history, like who are some of the people that have motivated you or encouraged you and been an inspiration to you? The first one that comes to mind as being just so important to me was Barbara Walters. As as unusual as that might sound, I really admired her when I was young. You know, I was a kid of the 80s. I watched television all through the 90s. And Barbara was one of the only women I had ever seen go toe-to-toe with presidents, go toe-to-toe with CEOs, go toe-to-toe with politicians. And so I thought, wow, that's an impressive person. I want to be that powerful someday. And so Barbara Walters was like the catalyst for so many of my 
decisions in life. I remember her as a child too on 2020. I mean, it was yeah. like she was such a force. It was, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It's hard, to watch it's hard not to realize just how big of a deal that is. You know, another person that I admire hugely in, in terms of the entrepreneurial world and who motivates me a lot is Ava DuVernay. She's a person who worked in media much like me, but then ultimately started a production company and has been unbelievably successful winning every award a person could possibly win. But what I love about her and what I love about what she's doing is, you know, one of the things of growing a business, growing a company is the talent pool that you're building. And Ava has built schools and programs and training programs to help build a pipeline of talent to her company that I just find so admirable. I think all the time about how the next generation of companies are going to have to think beyond just here's a job and actually think about here's the here's the path towards a career at this organization. And so I'm, I'm hugely inspired and motivated by that. And then I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't point out that I just had amazing men in my life as well. My grandfather as an entrepreneur was the first person to teach me what feminism was. I was his only granddaughter. And so he was very convicted that I understood that I could do anything that my cousins could do or that my brother could do. And, you know, it's top of mind for me as well. But you know, my father passed away recently and my father was a profound person in the sense that he was an artist. He, was, he wore his artistic creativity on his sleeve. And for a man of his generation, the best gift that he gave me was he always told me how much he loved me. He always told me how proud he was of me. And he always encouraged me to do the thing that I believed was the right thing for me to do. And it didn't matter that it was completely insane for me to start a business with no business school background. He said, go do it if that's what you want to do. And, you know, I think as children... I think about myself, you know, in the future as a parent, I hope I can be that brave to allow my children to really go after the things that they believe in. Liz, I'm so glad this is a podcast. <laughs> you're, <laughs> making me, you're making me tear up here. I've got two daughters and so special that you shared that about your dad. And so sorry to, to hear of his passing. What a great group of diverse, diverse mentors that have clearly had a tremendous impact on, on your life. So thank you for yeah, sharing that. I've been that. very lucky. You're very lucky in life if you can point to more than one person who sort of had an impact on you. And so be grateful for that. That is spot on. Couple more questions. You, you, you have seemed to really have built a phenomenal network from what I've been able to gather. What tips would you have for founders? Because often I, I think this is quite an important ingredient in being successful. And you've seemed to have done that, you know, tremendously well. What, what advice on networking and building a network? You know, these are going to sound so silly, but they are my tried and true rules. The first is don't behave differently publicly than you behave privately. You know, that person should be the same person. So whoever I present myself to be in this podcast, I am the same exact person if you and I are sitting and having a cup of coffee. And so that, you know, try to have the same exact values in your public life and your private life. The second is genuinely be nice to everyone at every stage of their career. I can tell you recently, I, w I was having a meeting with an associate at a fairly large fund and it was a first meeting and there's so much advice in the world of startups of never meet with associates, only meet with partners, blah, blah, blah. And I met with this associate because I thought, you know what, they, they're hungry. They want to achieve things in life too. And uh, that person had written me a really nice email and I thought I can, I can have a meeting with this person. And after the meeting, this individual said to me, I have to tell you, you were the nicest founder I've met all year. And I, 
I, I said, excuse me, I'm the nicest? And he said, well, first of all, <laughs> he's like, you actually asked me about my job. You asked me about what, why I reached out. You were curious about sharing things with me that were not just about the numbers. And I genuinely felt like you listened to me when I spoke. And I just thought, boy, this is sad that this was the <laughs> nicest meeting you had because I just had common courtesy. But right. the truth is, the truth is, is that just be nice, be a nice person, be listen when people talk, listen fully. Don't be distracted by things that are not in your current window of opportunity. And then my final thing would just be before you decide to be a founder, I think it's really important that you know what your values are so that you can live your values. Because if you live your values, you'll actually attract a network to you that represents those values. It will It's actually like a magnet. I think that founders who have their values in alignment, all the good good stuff that is attracted to that magnet is palpable. And so as a second time founder, I can totally tell the difference between what I was like when I didn't totally know what my values were when I started my first company to how things are today. And let me tell you, it is an outsized impact in terms of your community, in terms of the amount of conviction that your community has about what you're doing, and in terms of the amount of support that you're going to get from that community. That's, that's brilliant advice. I mean, I, I distill that down to, you know, I, I think, so, unfortunately, sometimes people seek out mentors and seek out a network of people who look like them or think like them. But if you, if you think about what is truly most valuable, it is people that have the same values as you, not those other things. That's the essence of it, right? Because then you can, you get diversity with a common ground and a common bond of something much more, much more important and relevant. So brilliant, brilliant advice. Let's see. What about kind of to, to wrap up the last thing, last question, what's next for you? What's next for Suna? What are you getting excited about? Any, any th- exciting news to share about what's, what's to come for the company? Well, 2022 is going to be a fantastic year for Suna. We have a lot of really huge expansion plans. We'll have a very exciting new financing to be able to announce to the world. And I'm beyond thrilled to be able to say that We're actually going to be going into some new geographies and offering up our platform to to photographers and creatives in new cities. And so the platform will now be launching in Seattle, Los Angeles, and Atlanta next year. So we're really excited to be expanding. We hope folks will join us on the platform next year. Well, we'll we'll be sure to get help you get the word out. Hopefully, when this episode, thank you so much for being on the show. Really, such a great episode. And could you please tell our audience a little bit about where they can find you and Suna online? Absolutely, you can learn more about Suna at Suna.co. That's S-O-O-N-A.co. You can always follow us on all of the social medias at Suna Studios. And if you want to learn more about me or just get general advice about how to be a founder and survive every single thing that this, this journey throws at us, you can follow me on social media at Liz Georgie. Georgie is G-I-O-R-G-I. Thank you so much, Liz. Really a pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. 
You can find links in the show notes or go to our podcast page at nextfrontiercapital.com to get links and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. We'll see you next time. Thank you.